we went to the library, and the doors had the crest. Uh, we went into the chapel, uh, the only two in the chapel, but we went into the chapel, and the pulpit throw had the crest of Harvard University. We went to look at buying some T-shirts, uh, considering that we might bring them home as gifts for our loved ones and family. And there, that crest with the motto emblazoned on it was there. Uh, On that T-shirt, on the great, big, huge, huge fat ones and the itty-bitty, tiny baby ones, uh, they had the letters V-E-R-I-T-A-S. Boldly emblazoned everywhere. It was omnipresent. Harvard seemed to be all about veritas, Latin for truth. Uh, When I returned home, I looked up that Harvard seal and crest and the motto emblazoned upon it. And the motto did contain the word veritas, truth. But it was joined to three other Latin words. Christo e Ecclesia. It was not on on the seal of any of the seals that we had seen while at Harvard. I learned that it is on a PhD diploma, but in bold letters you can see Veritas, but you can hardly make out Christo and Ecclesia. The whole motto for Harvard University translated into English is truth for Christ and the church. At Tyndale, we believe that there is such a thing as veritas, truth. With a small t, with a capital T, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the words of Tyndale's new Mission statement, which was adopted by the Board of Governors not so long ago, were dedicated to the pursuit of truth for the glory of God. So it got me to thinking how is it that a university that was founded as a Christian university a couple of centuries ago no longer holds to those? foundational principles upon which it was founded? Why is it that a university that was started out with its motto, truth for Christ and the church, can drop any reference to Christ and the church? And if it can happen down there at Harvard University, what's to prevent it from happening way up here at another older, established, prestigious institution, such as Tyndale University College and Seminary. After all, we too are dedicated to the pursuit of truth for the glory of God. Now, some would wonder, did we borrow the mission statement from them? But that's another question altogether. Uh, These same types of questions... Although different circumstances and different environments seemed to me to be rattling around in Joshua's head as he gives his farewell speech. It's the first of three speeches in the book of Joshua. Uh, The one that Daniel Wong read for us today was the speech that he gave 
to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh as they were venturing to go off to their promised land on the east side of the river. There's another speech in the next chapter where he addresses the elders, the leaders, the officials, and the judges. And then the final speech in Joshua 24 where he gathers, gathers the whole group together at Shechem with those wonderful words where Joshua boasts, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. These speeches at the end of Joshua are almost like some of those many, many speeches that you read in the Lord of the Rings. They have their great battles. And then there's long speeches and toasts and... Oh, did I say toasts? There's long speeches. (laughs) And they make all of these farewell addresses. Uh, Remember, one of my favorites is right at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings when Bilbo Baggins gives his farewell speech. Uh, Remember this one? You may... I'll quote the part from the movie, not from the book. My dear Bagginses... Buffins, toques, and brandy bucks, grubs, chubs, and hornblowers, bulgers, brace girdles, and proudfoots. Alas, eleventy-one years is far too short a time to live amongst such excellent and admirable hobbits. I don't know half of you as much as I would like. And then this next one, I don't know if it's an insult or a compliment, and neither did the hobbits. And I like less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. (laughs) Joshua's farewell speech was not in any way tongue-in-cheek or meant to be a, a joke. He was very serious. He was very concerned. Uh, Would the... Would the nation of Israel abandon its high level of spiritual commitment? Would it abandon its integrity and its truth and gradually fall away into disobedience or apostasy? Would they remain faithful to God once they got into the promised land? And so as he's giving his parting words, he reminds them of a number of things. He, he reminds them that their past obedience, he reminds them of their past obedience to Joshua's commands and the commands that Moses had given. He reminds them of God's faithfulness of bringing them into this land and to the peace that they were now enjoying. He reminds them of their obligation to continue to keep God's command when they settled down into the land. And so almost to get his point home, he emphasizes almost quoting from Moses' Shema. He says, be very careful to keep the commandments of the, and the law of Moses, the servant the Lord your God gave you. To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To obey his commands. To hold fast to him. To serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so with these parting words, these last words, he t- they take their leave. And the two and a half tribes of Manasseh begin to move and eventually to make their way across the Jordan to settle into their land. The western tribes, the other ten, would disperse into their territories. And suddenly word comes that something unexpected and terrible was happening. 
the eastern tribes were, were building an altar. Uh, this was no light matter. An altar other than the altar at Shiloh, where the tabernacle of the Lord stood, symbolized a break with the worship of the one true God. It meant a following, falling away. It meant apostasy. And so our reading says, when the Israelites heard this, they had built the altar on the border of Gileoth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side. The whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Think of the scenario. These people had just said goodbye to one another in perhaps very moving circumstances with many farewell speeches. They were sick and tired of war. They'd fought the Battle of Jericho. They'd been involved with the Amalekites. They'd done all the fighting, and they were sick of it. They wanted just to go home. They were longing for their awaited peace. Uh, but as suddenly, as soon as they had heard that the two and a half tribes were building this rival altar, uh, they snatched up their arms and prepared to march out against them. Uh, I wonder why. And I can only think of one explanation. Although they loved their brothers in arms and were certainly tired of fighting, uh, they nevertheless loved the honor of God even more, and we were determined that nothing would stand in the way of God's honor. Uh, to borrow a line from Francis Schaeffer's commentary on Joshua, uh, they were zealous for God, and Schaeffer says, I would to God that we would learn this lesson. The holiness of God who exists demands that there be no compromise in the area of truth, veritas. So I wonder in a couple of decades or generations, uh, would we be prepared to go to war if two and a half tribes decided to move away from the truth? Uh, would the Board of Governors take up arms uh, to defend the honor and zeal of our commitment for the truth. I wonder. But I'd also suggest if they did, they might be off track. Because as we read in this passage, the war didn't start immediately. And in this, there's an important lesson. Arnold, I had to get in a peace-loving reference somehow. Uh, the Western tribes were ready to go to war. They were itching to go to war. But before they marched off against the eastern tribes, they dispatched a delegation to investigate the situation and see if the error they believed to be unfolding was something that could be straightened out. It was a demonstration of both love and zeal. Love for their brothers-in-arms, but also concern for God's holiness. And as I read this, and you can read the rest of the chapter, I notice some elements about that love prompted by zeal. First, the delegation from the West uh, was very forthright in describing what concerned them. Uh, today, we're often, uh, we're often very reluctant uh, to 
alienate anybody, give anybody offense, or we tone down our concerns, or we might say, ah, doesn't really matter after all. Uh, Not so this Jewish delegation. Delegation was composed of ten, one representative from each of the other ten tribes. It was headed up by Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest. And the delegation marched off to their brothers and sisters and said, How could you? How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar and rebellion against him now? Those are their words. They didn't mess around. Apostasy is called apostasy. Falling away is identified for what it is. And perhaps that might be something that we would consider doing before we take up an attack. Is to speak clearly, articulately, our concerns. If we're concerned for the zeal and the, we're zealous for God's honor, perhaps we should confront the situation. Another thing I noticed that the peoples of the West, when they did go and talk, were willing to pay any price to reclaim their brothers and sisters. I think it's important to see this. The Western tribes didn't merely demonstrate their love for those they thought were erring by going and talking to them, although that was very important and very significant in and of itself and something we can learn from. They did something even greater. They offered, they offered their own land. If the land is causing you to boys and girls to fall away, come and take some of our land. Come over on our side. It's costly kind of love. Uh, this is the kind of love, though, that wins people over. Uh, often when we do actually uh, practice, uh, can I use the word discipline, We do it in a self-righteous or a self-serving kind of a way, which usually exalts the person that's confronting and repels the other party. How much different and how more effective it would be if we paid a personal price in our attempt to reclaim those who are erring. For us, we might not give up land. As students, you can't even think about giving up land. It's OSAP that you're worried about, or how you're going to pay your tuition. But you might give up time. You might give up some of your comfort level to have those unpleasant conversations. And you might give up some money. These people are willing to give up land. If it's uncomfortable, if it's difficult for you to worship God over there, come and live with us. Move into our towns, move into our cities, come and stay on our side. Another thing I noticed when the concerns of the Western people were explained, the two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan agreed. It's important because it shows that these these were true followers of God. They weren't just imposters. Not a word in their reply indicates that the peoples of the East lightly thought that it was okay just to build false altars. They didn't say, as many would say in our day, when the Western group came and said, well, you know, it's it's just your opinion that we shouldn't build this altar. 
The words, in your opinion, uh, are an evasion. Uh, It's true that anything any one of us honestly expresses our opinion, but that's not the point. The point is, is, is that opinion right? Is that opinion the standard? Is that what what God has spoken? If there's any doubt about that point, believers might, might stop and work it out together to see if indeed that is what God has spoken in order to prevent misunderstandings and distortions. And that kind of an examination can take place in a university all of the time. But the one thing the true believer can't do is dismiss the charge as if it was relative. If God has spoken, we got to agree that those are words of truth and then conform our lives to them. Another thing is that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh agreed that the judgment was right. If they were going to build a false altar, then they should be called onto the carpet. They should be brought before Almighty God. But the reality was that as they were confronted, as their brothers and sisters affirmed their willingness to pay an ultimate price to keep them faithful to God, the reality was they said, no, we're not building a rival altar where we will offer sacrifices. We're building a memorial that unites us together with you people on the other side. It's a witness and a testimony to the altar at Shiloh. We're not building a false altar. And the tribes at that point in their history were reunited, united. In the final analysis, we as, as Christians have one duty in life, and that's to show forth the reality of the existence of God and his character in the midst of a world around us that often doesn't see that truth. It's not always easy to do. We live in a society where it's veritas for you and veritas for me, truth for you and truth for another, morality for you and morality for another. And this type of thinking would like us to believe that we would all have a wonderful life if we would just do that. The reality is there seems to be so much chaos and hatred and discomfort. We do need truth. We do need to defend the truth. As Christians, we have to show that a combined zeal for truth and love is the basis for harmony, and the final analysis is the thing that's blessed of God. My younger daughter, my youngest daughter, Uh, likes ballet, and I've endured more ballet recitals than you can ever imagine. And I was invited to one of her competitions not so long ago, and the music that came over the loudspeakers surprised me. Uh, It was the music of U2. And she came out, not in a tutu, but she came out and she danced to a song from How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb the earlier CD. The song was Love and Peace or Else. Bono sings that great Irish Catholic theologian from U2. He says, lay down. Lay down your guns, all you daughters of Zion, all you Abraham's sons. We need love and peace. 
love and peace. And then in the bridge it says, baby, don't know who he's talking about. And I, <laughs> and I don't know why my daughter was dancing to it, but he says, baby, don't fight. We can talk this thing through with me, uh, me and you. It's not quite grammatically correct, but we can talk this thing through. Love and peace, where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? If we're going to defend the truth, veritas, if we're dedicated to the pursuit of truth for the glory of God, I'm going to paraphrase Bono and say it's love and zeal or else. Amen.